this is Kirsten and welcome to another episode of FinTech Study Hall. Today, I am so delighted to have Chris Kelleher, a professor at Boston University and a lecturer and professor on finance to talk about the future of algo trading, AI, and all of that fun stuff. So Chris, thanks for joining today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here to discuss such an exciting topic. I would love to just kick it off about how you got into this really interesting field of algo trading and um, being a professor in this issue set. Like, What brought you on this path? Yeah, absolutely. So academically, I started off studying economics and math. And while studying, I came across the book Market Wizards, which is a great book. And it sort of covers you know, successful investors, some who are more discretionary and some who are more algorithmic. And I found that that latter, the, the more algorithmic black box type strategies sort of resonated the most with me. So that led me to give the hedge fund world a shot where, you know, I don't I wouldn't say at the time I had full context for what that meant, but I was really interested in sort of seeing those principles in practice. And, you know, so I went through, you know, a few different hedge funds and few different investment styles. But what was really interesting to me was sort of that quantitative approach as somebody who was, you know, quantitatively oriented. And so that led me to fidelity and, you know, teaching, you know, for me is is a way to stay connected both to industry and also to academia. So getting to see my students and hear their thoughts on algo trading and and you know what their ideas has been really rewarding as well. And you've also published a book over the past year on quantitative finance and python engineering and mathematics. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what readers can glean from it and where they can buy it if they were interested in learning more? Absolutely. So I think that the motivation for the specific book that I wrote was thinking about graduate students who come into their first semester and they have to learn finance, they have to learn math in the form of quant techniques, and they also have to learn to program. And I think that can be a pretty overwhelming sort of three things to learn at the same time. So my goal was to write a book to assist them in that. And the way that I sort of thought about it is let's write a book where we cover each of those three things and sort of treat them as equally important. And then once you get that sort of introductory material out of the way in all three, let's sort of structure the book in a very practical way. So I cover a piece of theory, then I give them a piece of code, which helps them to know how to implement that piece of theory. And then finally, I go through like a real world example. So an algo trading example, I would show in a real market how you could build an algo trading case. And there's code that people can leverage. So that was the idea. And the hope is that keeps them sort of on each of those three pillars sort of moving forward at a similar speed. Very cool. And at the end of this podcast, I'll ask you about your other favorite books, but I'm going to leave that as a teaser for now because um, your book should be a standalone <laughs> as far, you know, as you need to get everything kind of set in those three pillars. How do you see you've been really on the ground, you know, from the trading perspective, from the coding perspective over the past year, decade or two even? And what have you observed as some of the key changes in the markets? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I would start by just saying that like finance and quant finance and algo trading, they're sort of new fields, right? So when we, you know, decades, two decades, a lot has changed, right? Relative to a field like physics, where in that same period, we wouldn't see that same evolution. You know, just to highlight, you know, a couple things. I think that one of the things that we've seen is just a gradual and, and large increase in, in quant as a whole. So more quant strategies, more reliance on quant techniques. And I think we can see that in a few different ways. So there's definitely more 
quantitatively oriented investment processes. So there's more high frequency trading, there's more quant shops. I think even the places that are more discretionary, the people that work there are required to do more quant things than they used to be. So if you used to be at a discretionary shop, you probably didn't know how to code and you probably most of your research was sort of fundamental. But now there's so much more data and there's so much more available to us that People and coding is so much easier. So even those roles are coding in Python. And they're also, in addition to coding in Python, they're doing some basic regression analysis or other quant techniques. So I think that's a big one. Another one is maybe the democratization of finance, where you can think of that in two ways. One is just markets are more efficient. Uh, There's more things that trade on an exchange now than there were a decade or two decades ago. And there's also many, many more products available to retail investors. So they have a much easier time to sort of engage in the market directly without having to go through another channel. And then the last one I guess I'll highlight is just machine learning, which is something that has, you know, I think taken off and probably we're not done there. But there's more, you know, an adoption of machine learning to get access to new data sets and to use them in in place of other traditional models has been another development that's important. And we'll get into machine learning and AI some more, but I wanted to just weigh in. I agree the markets have gotten so much more efficient. And we look at, it's almost like HFT has become mainstream that everyone has um, this kind of access to efficiency and fast trading that you can trade on like the Fidelity app from your phone and get trades ex- executed immediately. We remember, you know, the time of the E-Trade baby of the early 2000s where it was, I forget, it was twelve ninety nine a trade. And it's just been so exciting to see the retail investor participation, especially over the past two years of that uptick from like, the 10% baseline to 20% baseline that there is this huge democratization of, you know, access to some of that fast trading technology and, you know, more and more interest um, in algo coding and and trading and and coding and finance that I get from just everyday students, even like how can they enter this field? So it's really, really exciting to have you on. But as far as, um, you know, AI in the future of trading, the many different news headlines now, some of them are kind of the end of the world that robots will take over which is a theme, if you look at some of the papers from the 50s, that's always been a fear, right? That the technology will take over. And I have truly seen, you know, AI as a tool for humans rather than a replacement. And um, that that is exciting to see happen. But what, what are your thoughts generally on, you know, AI, how it can be deployed in trading? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I think you're absolutely right. Like there's a very wide range of views where some people sort of view that AI will make finance boring and it'll sort of take and fill a lot of the roles that, you know, PMs or different analysis roles and just make sort of take a lot of that away. Where others on the other side of the spectrum sort of think very cautiously and very concerned about the potential for these black boxes and the lack of interpretability and things like that. Myself, I'm more in the middle. I think that there certainly are use cases of machine learning and AI. I think we have to, you know, there's a lot of subtlety with different types of investment processes. Some of them are much more suited to these types of AI techniques. You know, and we can talk a little bit more about that. The higher frequency we get, the more natural it's going to be for an AI type of, of technique to step in. But at the same time, you have some challenges there with just the need for computational efficiency. So I think that's one thing to sort of keep in mind. And then at lower frequency, we just don't have a ton of data. But I do think there's a couple other, you know, no brainer cases for for machine learning or AI. And one of them is, again, going back to this sort of alternative data case where 
alternative data is giving us access to data sets that we would not have had if we're not able to use machine learning and AI. So I think that's unquestionably additive. And I think that's something that will continue because as the techniques get more sophisticated, the we can access continually more data. So an example now I think is NLP, where maybe we can go beyond the text and the algorithms can be smart enough to get the tone and get the connotation to make better signals for us. Um, and then another example would be like, not, not necessarily predicting price, but predicting other things via AI and machine learning. So maybe things like volatility or earnings announcements or inflation or regimes, maybe those are easier and less, you know, controversial and challenging ways to apply these types of techniques in practice. And you've got to wonder if people at the Federal Reserve are going on chat GPT, like what should the information um, outlook be, you know, and chat GPT is so funny because it feels like a fancy kind of Google search at this point, but it's kind of the thing that everyone in Washington is talking about right now, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, alternative data. I, I remember going to conferences maybe 10 or 12 years ago where there were some early you know, alternative data vendors who are selling data on like social media data. And they just seemed like on the fringes of the conferences. And now they're kind of front row center. And in a large part, like the AI systems are only as good as the data set that goes into it, right? It's like um, a huge question, right? Like how, how do you measure the integrity of the data? Is there going to be some sort of credit rating agency for data? Well, this is AAA rated data. You know, how, you know, is it like levels of fuel or there's the premium data and the low grade data? And what impact does that have? It opens up this Pandora's box of questions of like access, the cost of data, privacy concerns and how you collect the data. I mean, where do you see that going? It just seems like there's so many unanswered questions. Yeah, I think those are all great questions. I mean, I think, like you said, so I think there's this um, trade-off too, because when you're accessing a new data set, it's very exciting and the reward is higher because very few people have it. And then as it becomes more mainstream, as you said, there's the potential for there to be this sort of decay or this sort of um, race to get that data and then the benefits sort of decay. So I think there's certainly some interesting benefits there. And also, like if we think about it, there's like when we're working with these alternative data sets, we don't have rich histories. So it can be much harder to think about an investment process that's structured on this new data uh, if we can only backtest it for, let's say, five, 10 years, because that's as far back as we can get the data. It gives us much less confidence. But at the flip side, maybe the reward is higher because there's less people who are in that space. So I think that's a huge trade-off. And then, like you said, I think the the concept of, of different data sets and making sure they're clean, that becomes more important the more automated and the, the more sophisticated the algorithms get. And that's going that's something that I always tell my students. It's like 80% of your data, 80% of your time, excuse me, is focused on data. And 20% of your time then is, space, is focused on the algorithms and things like that. And that's very unintuitive, but it really needs to be that way in order to have a robust process and something you can trust. Within that 80% of time where they're focusing on data, what are some, are there any free websites where they can get, students can get data or people just on investor forums or does, do universities have access? Like how does one access a data set if you're just an individual and not part of a bigger corporation? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think my students will first go to Yahoo Finance, which is a good data source for things like equities. There's much less data for things like fixed income. And so it can be a little bit harder to get access to those types of data sets. And similarly, like higher frequency data sets can, can be hard to get. Often, 
universities will have access to some data services like words, which is Wharton Research Data Services, which is very good and clean data. It usually has options data. It usually has other types of higher frequency data that students can leverage. Um, and then CRISP is really good data in equities. One of the challenges with something like Yahoo Finance is survivorship bias. So what CRISP does is it provides a price for every company, regardless of what happens, whether it merged, whether it disappeared. And obviously, that's an important thing to keep in mind as we're backtesting systematic strategies. So you're, it's definitely a challenge and finding free data is a, is a skill. Um, but there are a few other ones out there, like there's a potential like for treasury.gov gives yield curve data. And then there's a couple others that will do like FX and things like that. And I'm guessing some of this might be in your book as well for people to access. So that's useful. I mean, you mentioned the survivorship bias. Are there any other types of bias that you can identify that are pervasive in data sets that people should look out for as hazards? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. I think it all depends on what type of data you're working with. So I think that when we work in equities, we have the luxury of working with very good, clean data. When we work with options, for example, it's almost the reverse. So we're, we're given a bid and offer, then we usually make mid out of it. But where exactly we would trade relative to bid and offer matters a lot for when we're doing the modeling. So I'm always telling students to be very careful working with options data. There are certain arbitrage checks you have to do. And as you mentioned, this is also discussed in the book where there's a, some rules about the different arbitrage checks you should do. But if you don't do that, you can end up with a model that works really hard or tries to take advantage of a perceived arbitrage that just is not really there. So that's another example of something that's important to incorporate. And this ties kind of into my next question, which is what is most misunderstood by your students? What is a question that often comes up that where they find a pitfall in building out their kind of models? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say as a whole, students are very excited about machine learning. They're very excited about other things like cryptocurrency and things like that. But most of what they want to do is really centered on applying machine learning to trading strategies, alternative data, things like that. And I think they can get so excited about that that the first step can almost be forgotten. Again, if we sort of circle back to that 80-20 rule where 80% of your time needs to be on data... If you're spending more time on machine learning, you might not be giving it the features that really are needed to make a machine learning algorithm work. And so that's one of the things that I think is misunderstood. And relatedly, I think students will often think they'll be so enthralled with the machine learning technique that they'll assume that that in of itself will make the strategy work. But as we know, if you put garbage into any model, it's not going to give you something meaningful. So, you know, a big point of emphasis that I make with them is let's compare it to something simpler like linear regression. And that will give you an objective lens for is my, is my model really helping me and how much? Maybe it's helping a lot and your features just aren't good. It can just be really helpful to sort of figure out where to go. I think generally speaking, it's great that we have so many packages and it's so easy to sort of deploy these machine learning algorithms. But I think, you know, I always remind students to make sure you understand, because like, when something goes wrong, you need to understand what the package is doing. So I always encourage them to be thoughtful about the input features and then also be thoughtful as they sort of go through that process. Interesting. And conversely, I would say also, or on the same level, I guess I'd say, you know, Congress like looks at AI and I remind them it's it's a combustion engine and the natural resource going in is the data, right? And so that's the oil that's making that engine work. And so to look at that, the integrity, the access, like how you go about collecting it. You look at countries like China where 
there's the social credit score where there's easily collectible data that some feel that China might have an advantage over the U.S. as far as collection of data. Whereas in the U.S., we have obviously privacy concerns with the government collecting such data and then questions of how do we um, compete in a global ecosystem of AI, you know, and how does the U.S. remain a leader in innovation? So those are all questions, I, you know, I get from staff across the board. And I think those are important questions. And it's interesting to hear you look at it from your professorial role, like students, like how are you interpreting the data that you have access to? And you mentioned um, kind of cryptocurrency and you know, that brings up this great Pandora's box of DeFi, right? I think that's the trend we're seeing happen, decentralized finance. And there's so many different um, kind of different business models and use cases for that. Is that something your students are, are talking about a lot? And do you see that as something that students will kind of focus their future professional growth on? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's something that they're definitely interested in. As a newer market, I think it's an interesting space. And I think students have sort of picked up on that. I think, you know, if cryptocurrencies relative to other markets are less efficient, right? So it's a natural place for us to look when it when we think about things like algorithms uh, and algo trading, where maybe we can apply the similar principles that we would do in equity markets and maybe have more success because a lot of that has sort of been, you know, as markets have gotten more efficient, some of that has sort of been priced out in, in equity markets. And so I think that's something that students are are willing and excited to do. And, you know, one of the things that I say to them is like, you know, one way to have an innovation is to come up with a totally new idea. And that's great. Um, probably more common way for it to innovate is to take an existing idea and try to tweak it or to apply it in a different space. And so I think that, you know, applying similar things in crypto that we might apply, have applied in equity markets, I think is a, a good example of that. And I think students are, you know, conceptually very excited to do that. And it's interesting to see how DeFi is offered kind of new business models for accessing data. Like I think the Pyth network, which a number of, of fintech players have worked on, creates kind of a blockchain record of, of trades so that that data is accessible and free versus kind of the fees that a people are paying now. So it's just interesting to see the innovation. And I, and I think there's so many great new inventions ahead that haven't been discovered yet. And it's exciting to see, you know, what your students will come up with really as far as the future of finance. Absolutely. So just like looking back to other books that you recommend, you mentioned, obviously, everyone should read your book, and which I assume is available on Amazon. Can you say the title again so we can get it? Yeah, if we so, want to? so my book, which is available on Amazon, is Quant Fi Finance with Python is the title. And you're available to give autographed copies, of course, right? I'm Absolutely. Sure. Very happy to do that. And then um, maybe can you mention a couple of your other favorite books for those who want to go home and do some self-study for our study hall? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll start with maybe a lighter math book. So there's Ernest Chan actually wrote two books on algo trading, which are very good. They're more focused on the intuition and they're more focused on the concepts and they give really good examples. So, for example, there's a classic example of pairs trading in there where you do gold versus gold miners. Uh, so those are, are good books that I would highly recommend. Uh, more on the machine learning side, I would definitely recommend books by Marcos Lopez de Prado. So he's written good books on basically how to replace certain things in the different investment processes with machine learning, whether it be portfolio optimization, asset allocation problems, things like that. And then I guess one last one, which I'll mention is uh, a machine learning for algo trading book, and that's by Jansen. And so that has a lot of good content in it and a lot of specific examples to algo trading. 
Fantastic. And just closing it out with my very last question, what are your top couple trends you see ahead in the next five to 10 years? Put your future of finance hat on. That's a really good question. So I think one of the things and sort of the way I phrase this for my students is I think the trend is really good for quants because we're sort of seeing the increase of data that quants can help us process and understand. We're seeing an increased reliance on quant techniques, an increased willingness to adopt more quantitative investment strategies. And so I think those are all, all really good things. I think we're also seeing markets get more and more efficient. And so I think that is a trend we'll continue to see and creates more opportunities for things like algo trading. And then I guess the last one I would say is, you know, just to emphasize something we've sort of already talked about is I think there's going to continue to be more and more uses, use cases of, of machine learning. I think we have to find the line as we sort of discussed earlier, but I think we're still in the early stages of adoption. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Awesome, Chris. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you can come on again, maybe in a couple months and give us your next update. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.